We are in the midst of a study of First Peter. Uh, we're in the fifth chapter today, and I am picking up the reading in verse 12 of First Peter chapter 5. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance that we have to be in your word this day. We never want to take it for granted, the miracle that you're a God who has spoken and in mercy has made what you've said available to us. Ensured its superintendence to put it in the form where we could read it and study it, have access to it. And now we pray that your Holy Spirit would carry out that illumining ministry within us that We would not only understand in our minds the things that you've said, but you would plant it down to the level of our hearts. And we would recognize the application to our beliefs, to our actions, to our attitudes. Work within us in this time that we have together, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Peter. We're getting in First Peter. The last two times that we've been together, we were looking in that fifth chapter at verses 8 to 11, focused on the reality of the spiritual warfare that we face, that the Christian life, we're reminded, is lived in the very center of spiritual warfare. And God wants us to know that we're in the battle zone, and he wants us to live with the realism, the caution, that living in a battle zone should produce in anybody who's giving it half a thought. God wants us to be living in realism and caution. Not living in fear, but realism and caution, so that we approach it properly. The key issue, and I try to share this with younger believers as I meet with them, there is no safe zone, spiritually. There's no place that you're out of the war. We'd like there to be. Wouldn't there be times you say, well, I'd just like to be out of the war. I'd kind of like to get off. And, and God says, yeah, I know you'd like that. But I've decided to leave you there. And you say, well. So there's no safe zones. Uh, we learned that Satan was the enemy of our souls. His goal is to destroy us, not just to get us to stumble. He wants to destroy us. He wants to keep the unbeliever from believing and be saved. He wants to keep the believer from growing and therefore be of no use in their life in this life. And... Uh, So he's working to destroy. And we were talking about uh, learning to hear his roars. Uh, That he's roaring not just in the way the lion roars, but the roars that he does, which are very real, take a different form. And learning to remind ourselves when we hear false teaching, accusation, and so forth, that those are roars really coming from the enemy. He wants us to resist it. We talked about the strategy last time. And to realize that we're not alone, all of the redeemed are facing it. It's not like there's just a few that the Father decided not to take care of, or that you're on his bad list, so you happen to be in the midst of the battle. Uh, Everybody's in it. Everybody. Uh, And there's no one exempt. Uh, And he promises never abandon us there. 
And he says, after all is said and done, keep reminding yourself you're on the winning side. (laughs) Important reminder, we are on the winning side. You say, well, I'm in the middle of a battle. Whoever wins this thing, I'm interested in it, but I'm interested because today I'm in the battle. You know, it's like that's what's occupying my attention, and God knows that, which is why he's addressing this question. But even in the battle, God is wanting to remind us, hey, don't forget you're on the winning side. I am the one who has the true dominion, is the terminology used. So keep telling yourself that. Keep reminding yourself and say, well, Satan tries to make me think he's, like the end's in doubt, he's, he's possibly going to be the one in dominion, and God says, oh, no. No, no, that's not going to be the case. Now today, as we enter into these last couple verses in the fifth chapter, God ends this epistle with reminding us of his purposes, first of all, in writing it. He gives a final challenge to us, and then he gives us a final reminder. So we're going to look at those purposes and challenge and and reminder together. But before we do it, I want to turn your attention to how he writes. He says, I've written briefly to you uh, a brief book. In, In Peter's mind, he said, I wrote you briefly. It's sort of like reporting on, uh, on what's going on in Africa. It's like, <laughs> I, I reported to you briefly. It didn't seem so brief, but it is brief. There's so much more that could be said. Uh, it's sort of like Peter says there's so much that God is revealing. Uh, but I wrote down this brief synopsis. These are the things the Holy Spirit is prompting me to write down. Brief. And I thought to myself, it's amazing how long it takes to study something brief. I looked back over our things and was reminded that uh, it was when I came back from the sabbatical following my heart surgery that we began to look at 1 Peter. That was back in January of uh, 2023. Uh, Need I remind you, we're in January 2024 and we're just finishing it. You say, well, Gary, you've not been too brief. But uh, we have looked at it. And really, there's so much more in any part of it that we were looking at that we could have gone further with. So it was brief, in a way. It just took a year to say it, that's all. And uh, we're going to continue on, Lord willing, into Second Peter, uh, as God gives grace uh, after this book. But let's, let's look at some of what uh, God has said here. He explains the first of his purposes. He says, By Savannah's my faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring to you that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. I have written you to exhort you. The Greek word translated by exhort here is perikaleo, which which means to, literally, to, to call from up close. It was used to describe something that was upfront and personal, close up and personal. Uh, it described something that wasn't sort of a vague scent of generalities, but something very specific, something very applicable to one's life, a very personal sort of exhortation. Uh, have you felt particularly that God was being very specific and personal with you as we've worked through First Peter? It's like, you know, this isn't just helping my theology to work out, Lord, but, ouch, you just said something that really, I, I'm dealing with this, or I encounter this. God intended it to be that way. I mean, he wanted that sort of message. Uh, that's the reason, by the way, he calls for us to teach the scriptures verse by verse. 
Because he's not only interested that we present accurately the doctrinal foundations of the faith. That's important. But he also wants it shared in this sort of way because in the midst of gaining the doctrinal foundation, God is interested in transforming our lives. And so he is taking the truths and making them upfront and personal, inescapable. And if you want to get a handle on what God's doing, realize it's inescapable. And if you've been working your way, whether it's in a teaching like this or in your own devotions through First Peter, and you found, man, I would like to escape out of this passage, you know, uh, you're in good company. God intended it to be of that form. Uh, but understand, God was intending it to be that way, not to discourage us, but to encourage us. In other words, he, it, it's, it's that way not to create a problem for us, but to help us out of problems. Because you've got to have upfront and personal to get out of something. Uh, you can't get out of something if it's not upfront and personal. And I don't have to be personal with you, by, in, like in the sermon, giving an example out of your life. That's, that's not what he's talking about here. But the Holy Spirit very readily will bring into each of our minds the episode out of our life. I mean, he's, he's a master of that. And that makes it even more inescapable because now, boom, it's front and center. And, uh, and our response often to God is, oh, I wish you hadn't brought that up. You know, uh, uh, I was doing okay, kind of generalizing what this was all about. And now, ooh, ouch. Uh, yeah, this is what's true in my life. I'm so glad the Word of God is that way. That's why the Bible describes it as living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. <laughs> he, he wants it to be that way. Isn't it wonderful that God has a purpose in giving us his word that's more than head knowledge? I'm unimpressed with somebody who can give me the head knowledge of the theology of their life or their doctrine. Not that that has no role, but that's not the only reason that God gave us his word. His word's purpose is greater than mere information. His word's purpose is to give us perspective on life so that we can live it, we can be changed, we can be growing. Uh, only knowing God's word puts things into perspective. And apart from that, we're not going to have it in perspective. No matter how much I might try to reason out things in my life, it's not enough. I need the sword of the word prompted by the Spirit of God to penetrate to the divisions of my life I don't even want to make. But God does. And so he penetrates deep within us. The Word of God enables us to see life as it really is. To discover this, what the world around me is trying to sell me about life isn't accurate. But it goes to great trouble to try to sell me that way. And what Satan is trying to sell me and mislead me about isn't accurate. God's word is accurate. And what I'm trying to tell myself to sort of how make sense out of my life isn't necessarily accurate either. I need a source of truth that's eternal. Breathed out from the very God who created us. I get that. All right, I got some hope here. I, I can move forward with it. Of course, the tragedy is if the word is that central, and it is, of course, uh, we begin to appreciate the magnitude of the problem everywhere in the world, but particularly in all culture. Because study after study after study reaffirms the level of biblical illiteracy is almost 
unparalleled in our history. Biblical illiteracy among those who say they're going to church. It assumes the people who aren't are biblically illiterate, but the people who are, they don't know God's word. I, I think of the, the prophetic passage in Amos chapter 8, verses 11 to 12. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, but, nor of a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of God. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They'll run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord. They shall not find it. Makes me think of our era. There's no shortage in my reading and interaction with people. There's no shortage in our era of people who want to hear God's voice. But by that, they don't mean I want to hear what God said. They want to hear some subjective voice of the Lord in their life. And they're encouraged to seek after that. Brothers and sisters, that will never work. And notice how Amos puts it, how God says it in Amos. They shall not find it. It isn't a question of sincerity. You go out seeking God's voice. And people are encouraged to do that. You'll hear a voice all right, but it isn't God's voice. There's no place else to find God's voice but here. That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit doesn't help us to make application and to see it. But if you're going around trying to seek God's voice, and in fact, people are encouraged to do that. Endless numbers of books and self-help books and even preaching that goes on, encouraging people to seek God's voice, seek God's voice. But they don't mean seek this. They're talking about something subjective. That is the dead end. And the life story of someone will be they shall not find it. Well, the second purpose, he says, is not to just exhort you, but to declare to you that this is the true grace of God. To declare means to uh, bear witness about something in the proper way, in the fitting manner. Part of the purpose of First Peter, as we've been working through it, is to help us understand what the nature of God's grace is all about. If you look for a theme woven through it, from chapter 1 onward, it's been talking about God's grace. We can make sense of it. Then we've learned a number of things about God's grace throughout First Peter. I won't summarize all of them, but let me summarize a couple. Number one, we learned that God's grace is ultimately expressed by giving redemption to all who hear the truth of the gospel and respond with repentance and faith. So that we're saved by grace, by his expression of the work of sending his son to die for us. You say, I'm declaring to you the true grace of God. That's the true grace of God. But then as we were working our way through the book, we discover that the grace of God is not only used biblically to describe that wonder surrounding that work of Christ freely done on our behalf, but it also describes God's enabling because the grace of God describes an enablement at times in the Scripture, not only a provision. And throughout First Peter, we keep encountering the reality that God's grace is shown in the form of the enabling of the Holy Spirit. When we hear the truth of God's Word, decide to believe it and decide to act on it. Certainly that will be true in evangelism. We don't, we'll, we'll hear God's truth about the gospel and then decide to act on it and act on the convicting work of the Holy Spirit about it, and then we're saved. But as a Christian, as a disciple, we hear God's word, and we hear saying, okay, I'm convicted about it, I'm going to act on it. I'm going to, I'm going to do what you say. 
uh, and God's enablement from his spirit comes that way. Uh, so that's another of the true grace of God truths that are encountered throughout the book that we've been studying. What redemption is all about and what enablement is about. But there's another thing that's been happening throughout all of this book, and that is to remind us that both the saving grace of God and the enabling grace of God never, never comes from sacraments, religious rites, impartation from a priest, or self-effort. God's grace doesn't take those forms. And boy, what a great reminder that is, both about the salvation message, how to be saved, but also on the message, how to grow. And Satan will do what is best to try to get us confused about such things. And therefore, we need a declaration of the true grace of God, so we understand it. And God says, after it's been declared to you, here's what you're supposed to do about it. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in it. Cling to it. What what does stand firm mean? It means, number one, you cling to the new covenant. That's my hope. Christ died for me. That's, That's my hope. That's why we share about it in the Lord's Supper whenever we meet for the Lord's Supper. What does it mean to stand firm? It means I continue to trust the gospel message. I keep resting in it. You know, I believe it. And I keep my hopes rooted there that God has made this promise. It means if I'm going to stand firm in it, I take God at his word. When he says something, I'm not thinking, well, I wonder if that was God or Paul. No, no, it was God. I mean, that's why we have it here. It was God who said that. And to stand firm in it means I'm going to stand fast on his promises. You know, that's where I'm going to be. He said it. I believe it. I'm going to hang on to that. And what does it mean to stand firm? It means I choose to live a surrendered, independent life. God's word makes it plain. There's no place to be as a believer except surrendered. If you're not surrendered, you're carnal. Whatever the moral implications would be, you're carnal. But if you surrendered, then there's hope because you're growing. And dependent upon the Holy Spirit, enablement. There's no complacent place to be. Only a surrendered, committed place to be as a believer. So, that's what it means to stand firm. So, two purposes. Reminding us of why the book was there. If neither of those purposes came across to you when we were studying it, then you should come back and say, Pastor, you missed the point. (laughs) I didn't hear any of that during the time this past year that we've been trudging our way through this book. But if it did get heard, then praise God, (laughs) because that's what it was about. Not all that it was about, but those were the main issues that God wanted clearer to us. But then he gives us a final challenge. He says, verse 13, She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. The final challenge, to me very interestingly, has to do with how you respond, or should be responding, to brothers and sisters in the church. And the final challenge of 1 Peter is, God wants us responding as family to each other. That's, that's what he's after. The church is meant to be a place where people actually care about one another. Where koinonia is a priority. Relationships are intended by God to be close. That's, that's what he wants. People in a flock are intended to be connected and cared for. 
God, in other words, intends the local church to be a family because there's no way to have that connectedness and individualized care if you're bigger than a family can be. I mean, he want, you can be small to be a family and not have it, of course, but God says, listen, I, this is what I want it to be. What's that mean? God's intention for the church isn't for it to be an entertainment center. It isn't a place for mass concerts. Not that there's no place for music. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that's all God's intention is here. I'm reflecting on this. It's the difference, if you can think about it in this parallel, it's the difference between being involved, sitting around the table in a board game, or going to a football game. If I'm sitting around the table in a board game, whatever that game is, I'm engaged with the people that are doing it. We're in it together. If I'm at the football game, we might be engaged together in cheering or booing or whatever, but uh, the real engagement's out there. God says, no, no, the church is the board game. That's, that's what he wants. It's, it's not a spectator sport. Everybody's supposed to be engaged with each other. And a church is strong only to the degree that they are. Now, worldly measurements might say it's strong in other fashions, but God's measurements are the only ones that really matter. And God says you're not strong if you don't have that. The strength emerges because you're engaged with each other. God called the church to be countercultural. And the countercultural picture he wants us to share in the midst of this fallen world is the countercultural picture of family. There's all kinds of images out there of momentum. There's all kinds of images out there in the culture around us of large-scale gatherings. There's almost no images of family. I'm not talking church. I just mean in general in the culture. God says, no, what I'm looking for this is part of the, the countercultural reality. I want it to be a family. I want people, when they get together, to see there's like a family mentality. People are being prayed for. They're being warmly greeted. He puts it this way. You know, greet one another with the kiss of love. In that culture, the issue was the, the kiss of love was a description of family ties, the, greet, you know, kiss each other on the cheek. It was like this, we show that we're intimately connected to these people because we give them this greeting. Uh, it's not so much biblically a command that you kiss somebody, but what did that kiss represent? In that, in that culture, this is what you reserved for family. Uh, this is how we responded to one another. Uh, showing family affection. Not just externally, but certainly showing family affection. What's that mean? There's no place for a church that isn't filled with family affection. Uh, Family affection, the church is meant to be a place for warm hugs and handshakes and sense of belonging and people caring about what's going on in each other's lives. And that's what God wants the church to be. That's, That's what he wants. People can find other things, other places. Where else in the fallen world will they go and find a group of people who are not necessarily related by blood, except the blood of the Christ, uh, who actually, truly, are a sense of family with each other, 
care about each other. It matters to them what's happening in each other's lives. They rejoice with those who rejoice. They weep with those who weep. They help those in trouble. They, they get helped when in trouble by those who, who can help. Where else do you see that uh, in the culture? And God says, this is part of my intention in the midst of the world. The world around you is captivated by what the world can't duplicate. The world can't duplicate salvation. And it can't duplicate koinonia. Only the church can do that. But people say, well, that's not real flashy. No, probably not. But it's vastly more important. And ultimately, spiritually, more significant. Well, you feel like family? I hope. Nobody's perfect in that. But I hope you sense that's what we're after. That's what we're trying to achieve. More important than other things. Family. Family. A place I really belong. Not because somebody says I belong. Not because I have a formal membership. But I belong there because I know they care about me. People are praying for me. I, I hope you feel that. And then he ends the book by saying... And peace to all of you who are in Christ. It's kind of a, the challenge was about family life. And then the, the, the final reminder is, remember where real peace comes from. Remember where real peace comes from uh, in Christ. The only source of real peace is being in right relationship with Jesus Christ. Number one, by responding to the gospel. Remember Romans 5.1. Therefore, we've been justified. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The real peace is found that way, through Jesus Christ. And then following the Lord Jesus Christ, he's our Lord. We're following him, seeking to grow. We find inner peace. Not only positional peace with God, but inner peace. In John 14, 27, he says, My peace I leave with you. My peace I'll give to you. Not like the world gives do I give to you, so don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be afraid. You see, it's not just a positional doctrine. He's leaving something with us that allows us to not have troubled hearts. You're not going to find that unless you're seeking to grow in that one and follow him. And God says, I'm ready to give this to you. Think about some of the uh, passages on prayer, Philippians 4 being a great example, uh, how peace, passing understanding will be ours as we put stuff in his hands. And within the context of the very body-life family that he's been talking about in, in this same verse, a certain amount of peace is interpersonal peace. People that appreciate interpersonal peace are the people who have discovered what life is like without it where they've been ostracized, dismissed, not cared about, held at arm's length. And they they just desperately would want a place where there's peace of relationship. And God says, I want my family to be a place where there's peace of relationship. Oh, that doesn't mean that we don't try each other at times. That's why we're called to be forbearing. That can happen. Uh, but, But a peace of relationship, they're there. They care. They're sticking it with me. I stick with them. They stick with me. We're working it through. Responding to the gospel. 
determining to be a disciple, committed to body life. That's where real peace comes from because it all is rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And much of the book has been all about that. Romans 14, 19 says, So then let's pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Uh, We all need peace. We all need peace. Brothers and sisters, a final word. The gospel is not a message of peace and social justice in this fallen world. One of the great heresies of our current era has been translating the gospel into those very terms. That Christ came to produce social justice and civil peace within the culture we're a part of. Brothers and sisters, he came and creates a division between parent and child. Uh, they'll hate you because of me, he says. No, doesn't mean you and I as individual believers ought not to be striving to make peace. Hebrews 12 says, strive for peace with everyone. We're supposed to do that. But that's not the gospel. The gospel isn't about that. The only solution to social justice in this world is a new world. And that isn't going to happen by legislation. It's happening because of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And eventually, the new heavens and the new earth. I mean... Don't squander your life having reduced what can be eternally significant into what is temporally hopeless, which is to think it's all just about trying to foster social justice and peace. Do it, but not for those reasons. Well, there be it. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. There's people I'd love to give peace to and I can't because they're not in Christ. Their lives are troubled. They're not in Christ. I can't do it. No amount of counsel is going to do that for them. Maybe I can care about them and help to bridge them to to meet the one who can give them peace, but only he gives peace. Uh, When I'm in in the midst of this fallen world, I'm there to help introduce them to the person who can give them peace. I can't give them peace. Our church can't give anybody peace. But it can help people to find the one who can. Let's make sure our strategy is correct and know what we're called to do and what we're not called to do. Well, may God add his blessing on this. I hope our time in First Peter, torturous certainly at times, has been productive. And that God will, in his timing and proper in grace, allow our foray into Second Peter to well, maybe be equally torturous at times, but productive as we come to understand even more fully. The grace found nowhere else except through him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a chance to be together in this day. Lord, no matter how many times I'm in your word, no matter how many times we share in it as a church, I stand astounded you cared enough to tell us the truth. And, oh Lord, how much more each of us could be in your truth and yet find all kinds of reasons not to be. Oh Lord, in this 
fallen world characterized by futility of thinking and darkness, as Galatians puts it. Help us to be a people who link people to what is not futile, but true. Help us to grow. Dismiss us with your blessing in this day and this week, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.